Warning, this show contains adult themes and language, including gay people fucking in gas station bathrooms. Ethically. Disevidentia is an inability to reliably process evidence, and this is a podcast all about it. This episode was released on June 23rd, 2021, and we are discussing disevidentia because it is clear millions of internet denizens in the radicalization pipeline are suffering from it. I am Mako. And I am Squeaky. We discuss logic and evidence because it is the right thing to do, and it is really hard to make a good joke about ethics. Check out our sponsors at disevidentia.com on our support page. And please check out the sponsored links in the show notes to read some of what we have been reading. You can support us by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash disevidentia. If you have no money because that Gamergate lawsuit is just about to pay out, you can still like, subscribe, and leave a review to help us out. If you have a paper you have written or a small business to plug, let us know. The small business of the show is Innuendo Studio. Check out their YouTube channel in the show notes. Today we are going to discuss ethics and academic studies, radicalization by algorithm, and we wax philosophical on the discussion of discussion of ideologies. But first, I am going on a rant about an attack helicopter with no tie to shitty Republican mockery. You recording? I am this time, yes. Hey, it worked. That's once in a row. I argue a lot of politics online. Sometimes that leads to interesting interactions, but not this week. Representative Kevin McCarthy posted some nonsense, and I called him a traitor and said he wasn't a good source because he was a liar. Of course, his supporters leapt to his defense. The argument rapidly got mired in name-calling and every Republican fear being projected onto me. Let me slow down for a moment and pick just one. The United States can accurately be described as a democratic, republic, magistocracy, with kleptocratic and pornocratic tendencies, all while supporting a robust capitalistic oligarchy and a militaristic hegemony. That sounds really negative, and there's a lot to unpack there. I view it as a list of things to improve, not a shit list, and I won't unpack it. But I will share some simplified definitions. Democracy, a government where people vote on stuff. Republic, a government where people choose leaders who do the day-to-day governing. Magistocracy, leadership by magistrates, judges. Kleptocracy, leadership by thieves. Pornocracy, a government so corrupt and willing to embrace drama that it reminds one of the porn industry in front of and behind the camera. Capitalistic, a culture that elevates money. Militaristic, a culture relating strongly to warfare. Hegemony, a group of countries all taking leadership from one. So knowing all these things about the United States, you can imagine my frustration when people say stuff like, We're a democracy, not a republic and how that is compounded when intelligent people like Legal Eagle repeat that phrase, not realizing it is a thought-terminating cliché used as part of a shitty political debate. With all that complex categorical nuance, it can be hard to discuss ethics in our leadership. People argue that the Constitution allowed for McCarthy to try to vote away our election results, and it does. It allows for that, so Congress isn't forced to accept fraudulent results from the states, and we had no evidence of fraud. So maybe we shouldn't be taking our ethical cues from government and laws, which I already described as a kleptocracy and pornocracy. So where should we get ethics? Some reach to the Bible and try to determine what Jesus would do. I think that is horseshit because there isn't much evidence to support religion, but that doesn't really matter because the Bible doesn't really have much to say about modern problems. The Bible doesn't say a lot about zoning or pollution. Even places where religious books appear to have some say, like abortion, taxation, or usury, it still takes human judgment to interpret that. Notice how the pious can't agree on these topics? Some people might reflexively reach for science, 
But it doesn't matter how much you learn about the facts and reality of what is, it doesn't matter how much you study evolution, for example, because that can't tell you if genetically engineered corn is ethical. That study can tell you if the engineered genes can leak out into the ecosystem, or not, or if those genes will hurt people eating them. You can't infer value judgment from the raw data alone. You need to use human judgment at some point. Put another way, science can't tell us what we want to do, but once we decide what we want to do, we can decide how best to approach our goals using science. It is up to us whether we do that ethically or optimize for something else. I am going to pick on one extremely contentious but stale topic for a deeper example. In April 2011, one soldier named Chelsea Manning, but at the time Bradley Manning, leaked a video of an attack helicopter killing some journalists. I think we can all agree that killing people and killing journalists unprovoked is bad. If you can't, then fuck off. But they were in a war zone, and reviewing the full 38-minute video makes it look like the pilots mistook bulky cameras for weapons. They asked for permission to shoot, they took some precautions, clearly not enough, but more than one might expect for a war zone. Look at the full-length video in the show notes. The full video is not clear, and these kinds of mistakes happen in earnest in war. Communication is hard even on the best of days. People seriously discussed punishing or firing the pilots and their commanders. The ethics around this is way less clear than it could be. How do we consider accidents, or people who might be using accidents to cover up mistakes when thinking about ethics? Then the leaker, Chelsea, who claimed to just want to expose corruption, also released three-quarters of a million other files. She was tried and held with less than the entirety of due process. She was a soldier and subject to the UCMJ, a sort of military-only law, in addition to normal law. And leaking such vast amounts put her in a special category, but also the relative ease she did it made leniency seem plausible. To leak this much when the laws were written would have taken semi-trailers full of stuff. Should punishment be harsh or lenient? The press coverage at the time made her holding conditions seem like borderline torture. There were accusations this treatment was in part because she was trans. Then her sentence was commuted to seven years from what might have been lifelong incarceration. There were so many mitigating factors. Chelsea tried to go through appropriate channels, and it seemed to everyone involved that Chelsea thought she was doing the right thing, even though all of her superiors in the government disagreed that it was actually the right thing. How much should intention and goals factor in? Is any of that right or wrong? This topic is clearly too much for me to cover in a rant, but this scenario has enough moving parts to be used in thought experiments. Think bigotry against trans people is good? If Chelsea had access to cheaper counseling and not the hyper-masculine environment that is the U.S. military, she might not have wanted to leak these documents. That is pretty damningly anti-bigotry and seems on firm footing with the evidence. Should we have not gone to war in the first place? Most listening now probably think it was a bad idea. But when we started, the war was overwhelmingly popular. We had evidence from previous wars and perhaps we could have known better. Should leakers be punished more, or could leaks possibly be prevented by increasing the amount of material that leaves through the official channels? The evidence seems to show that beyond a certain point, punishment is not an effective deterrent, and at some point, national security is important and needs to be protected, so we can't just release everything. Maybe we should encourage a strictly volunteer military instead of coercing membership by paying for college with the GI Bill. If college were federally paid for, then Chelsea Manning may never have entered what was obviously a difficult situation. I can't do this topic justice. I want to revisit it more in a future episode, perhaps as a central topic. But we can keep asking hypotheticals about this situation because it is so public and has so much visible nuance. There are a lot of questions here and on ethics in general. I cannot provide good answers. I can say how I approach ethics. Here is how much I take for granted. 
I have no evidence that this is right beyond my own intuition, but I do believe this needs to be the foundation for human ethics. Just four words. We should minimize suffering. That short sentence does a lot of heavy lifting. It implies that we know how. With enough science and data, we can know how. You won't find that sentiment in most holy books, so that is an uphill battle. There are sects of religion based on flagellation or horrible people like St. Teresa who encouraged an elevated suffering. Don't believe me? Check out the show notes at disevidentia.com and look at episode 10. Those four words also have a complex relationship with the law. Sometimes we must make laws that trade a major form of suffering for many for a small amount of suffering for others. Some of these trades are easy, like banning murder helps reduce murder victims, but infringes on the murderer's self-entitlement to kill. Other times, it is less superficially clear, and we have had to gather data, like how public education paid by taxes infringes on the wealth of all of us a little, but opens up so much opportunity, reduces so much crime, and otherwise improves life to such an extreme degree, it is obviously good from the perspective of minimizing suffering. I wish I could talk to each person who tries to shut down an argument about politics with witless quips about the country being a republic, and actually discuss ethics. I want to believe that most don't think that quip is actually the end of the discussion. But then I remember that 15% of the country is so bad at processing evidence that they think Q is real, and that more than 70 million people chose to vote for Trump when the alternative wasn't a racist kleptocrat. Whatever we do with ethics and laws, if we want to minimize suffering, we need to keep in mind that some double-digit percentage of our population is entirely incapable of processing evidence, and we have to make a system they can operate in and won't want to destroy. Oh, we don't have a joke in the warning. The carrot system failed us. I will go put carrots in the template. This is the greatest betrayal ever since I realized the buddy system can fail. So welcome to the podcast. This is uh, Sean. He is, uh, for full disclosure, he's my brother. He is a master's thesis away from his cognitive psychology degree at UNO. Correct. Now you listened and you noticed I made some errors about ethics when we were discussing it a few episodes ago. You have some experience with this? Uh, yeah, we can talk about that. So first of all, thanks for having me on. Uh, my name is Sean. Until recently, I was a graduate student at the University of Nebraska-Omaha studying cognitive psychology. While I was there as an undergrad, I was involved in um, behavioral research with humans as well as with animals. I understand that at least once or twice you actually did that very stereotypical running rats through a maze. I've never had rats in a maze. I have had them in a Skinner box, though. All right. Uh, Skinner box is one of those great examples of an experiment, but a lot of people don't know what they are. Can you explain a Skinner box for us? Yeah. So essentially, it's just a box that's sort of optimized to modify a rat's behavior. Typical Skinner box, probably about 18 inches by 18 inches or so. There'll be a couple of uh, instruments in there. Um, there's usually a lever that the rat can push on. Um, there's usually some sort of food dispenser where pellets will come out. Some of them also have a light that can be switched on and off, and then uh, hooks and loops to attach various uh, stimuli for the rat. So in there, you're experimenting and you're trying to see how the rat can learn or what it, what it learns? Yeah, so it's usually uh, the focus is on learning. So you can modify a rat's behavior through positive reinforcements, namely food. You can get it to do a complex series of tasks, like not just pressing a lever for food, but you can actually have it press a number uh, a large amount of times and then put its head through a loop and then spin in a circle in order to get one pellet. And then you can have that happen. You can teach the rat to only do that while the light is on or while the light is off. So something like that wouldn't necessarily be a experiment per se, but more just observational behavior. Have you ever been tempted to put people in there, like maybe your coworkers? Um, not yet. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you. You're okay. You're saying th about experiments and about what you were doing. Oh yeah, so not directly related to what we're talking about 
about, but uh, I do just want to put in there um, that a lot of the experiments that people talk about aren't necessarily experiments in the true sense. So people talk about the Stanford Prison Study, which I have a feeling might come up. Um, and that technically wasn't an experiment at all. It was an observational study. As in order to be an experiment, ideally you'll have at least two groups of things where all things are uh, kept constant except for one variable that the experimenter is manipulating. And then presumably any difference between conditions will be due to that manipulated variable. So there definitely are experiments in psychology, but a lot of these examples that uh, we may talk about might actually be uh, studies or observational studies. So the, the Milgram experiments or the, the Stanford experiments, a lot of people take away a very narrow result from that. I think maybe because of that and how misunderstood that is, maybe we should just discuss as much as we can from a clean slate. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great point, too, about it being a narrow slice. So there's a lot of moving parts in psychology. And really, the best a psychologist can do for a good, uh, methodologically clean study is just manipulate one variable and just come out with one slice of knowledge that adds onto the existing body of work. So it's very rare that you'll have a, a, a psychological study that sheds a lot of light on any one human phenomenon. But it's very possible to have quite a few studies that each kind of added one little tidbit to the discussion. Because I'm going to ask you questions directly not related to your expertise, why don't you tell us what your area of expertise is and the little narrow psychological light that you're trying to shed on the world? Absolutely. So I'm not sure that I would consider myself an expert on much. So while I was working on my graduate degree, um, I did have some direct involvement in cognitive psychology experimental studies. Usually, for those that don't know what cognitive psychology is, it's the study of attention, memory, language, problem solving, things like that. So a lot of people, when they hear psychology, they think of what's kind of portrayed in the media as being clinical psychology. Wait, or, hang on. Yeah. So you're studying memory and stuff. Do you know anything about why when I walk into a room, I forget why I went into the room? That actually comes up a lot in cognitive psychology. <laughs> I courses. was just trying to make a, a cheap joke, but that's yeah, a thing. Well, th that's the thing, too. Uh, so, like, when you get a little slice of knowledge per study, it's, you know, uh, let's say here. It would be hard to make a well-controlled study that would address that specific phenomenon. And so the short answer is no, I don't know exactly why that happens to you, but there's definitely some, you know. Yeah, you know, it's fine. I was trying yeah. to make a cheap joke. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> So I study cognitive psychology, which is different than clinical psychology, which is typically aimed at a therapy or, or helping people. So what I can talk about is sort of the non-therapeutic aspect of experimental psychology or non-applied. So basically, we're interested in figuring out how cognition works. And there may or may not be an application for it. Someday, some things we learn might be used to help people. But to some extent, it's also just why a physicist might study some fields of physics. There might not be an apparent application for it. But I mean, we have cognition and we want to figure out what's going on. Can you give us a brief definition of cognition or how you view it? Because a, a lot of words related to the mind and a lot of words related to our brain, they're loaded for a lot of people. So what do you think of when you say cognition? I would agree with just a basic definition that it's a mental process. And I know that's extremely broad, but so is the study of cognitive psychology. So when you talk about memory, learning, problem solving, obviously these are complex processes that have a lot going on behind the scenes. One thing that I wouldn't study directly would be behavioral neuroscience. You're focused on why people make the decisions they make or why people think the way they think, but maybe not down to the level of how individual neurons fire. Yeah, exactly. So I'm interested in studying the mind to the extent that it can be studied without directly looking at the brain. Because even if we had a perfect understanding of all the neurons in the brain, it's possible that you could map that out and a picture of certain cognitive processes wouldn't still emerge. It's the difference between a painter studying how to move their brush and how to get an effect versus a chemist studying why paint is red. Yeah, I think that's a good analogy. Okay. 
Awesome. I sidetracked you there asking you what cognition was. You were going to describe something. I don't know what it was because I cut you off. So I have a little bit of experience and expertise with that. That's really the extent that I can talk about. Originally, I think you had asked me to talk about uh, medical ethics. That That's exactly the uh, faux pas we made and you emailed me about. Just full disclosure, I do work in a pharmacy. So I have some experience with pharmaceutical studies, but I've never been directly involved in a pharmaceutical study in a way that I was involved in uh, experimental psychological research. So I'm not really qualified to talk about any sort of pharmaceutical research, at least beyond just what's available and guidelines and things. For anybody who does want to talk with us about pharmaceutical research, that is something we'd be interested in, especially with the pandemic, feel free to email us at contact at disevidentia.com. But uh, thank you for that disclosure so we know what you do and don't know. So I can tell you what's supposed to be done if you go by the book in pharmaceutical research, but I've never been directly involved. Same thing with any sort of uh, biomedical research. Um, involving devices, and as well as any sort of therapeutic interventions. You actually ran studies with some people back at UNO, right? Yes. Not me directly. I was a co-author, and I helped, I helped my advisor collect data. Okay, so you weren't in charge, but you were one of the researchers working on, one of the, on these projects. Sure. So what kinds of things did you have to disclose to these people? Because I, I claimed just naively that everyone was left in the dark all the time. Here's your five bucks for, for, for participating. Now go fuck off. There are actually a lot of rules and regulations governing what people collecting data from human participants can and can't do. Um, so, like, I can't stab people and just take their blood? No, you cannot. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, you can do anything once, but that's... Oh, but the ethics board would frown on it, and I might not get funding for a second round. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of studies, especially when psychology was young, and just medical uh, studies in general, did some things that were certainly not very ethical, and people, you know, had a problem with this. A couple examples would be the Tuskegee syphilis study. Oh, goodness. And that touches on race, too. Yeah, absolutely touches on race. The big thing there was that participants didn't know what they were getting into. In fact, they were outright deceived, saying that they would be receiving free medical treatment, when in fact, the researchers were actively withholding it when there was a life-saving treatment available. Yeah, and they were just giving black people syphilis. Don't quote me on this, but I believe that the participants in that already had syphilis when they enrolled. Oh, so they just withheld treatment for syphilis. Correct. So a semantic distinction. They let people die needlessly as opposed to killing people needlessly. Correct. It's not any better. but So there have been um, a number of studies that kind of got the public saying, hey, you know, maybe th this isn't okay. That one is particularly egregious. Yeah. I am presuming that most ethic disputes aren't that extreme. No, most of them are not. In fact, as we'll go into, especially within cognitive psychology, the biggest sort of ethical concern we might have involves deception, like it did in the study that you had mentioned. So most of them are not that egregious, but there are others that are pretty bad, though. If you want, I could talk about some of those. Yeah, sure. All right. So there was a sociologist in the 1960s and 1970s named Laud Humphreys. Laud Humphreys? He was a sociologist who was studying sexual behaviors, particularly of homosexuals. And what he did to collect data was he would go into public places, things like um, truck stops, restaurants, find men who were seeking out sexual intercourse and make observations about certain demographic things how they found each other. And the way that he sort of got access to this is that he would, quote-unquote, stand guard while the, while the men were engaging in, you know, sexual relations. Stand guard. Yeah, so I've never actually read this book, but my understanding is that this is something that happens in that culture, or at least did. So standing guard is sort of like being a lookout to make sure they're not interfered with? Yeah, exactly. And so he would 
lie to them. He wouldn't tell them that he was collecting data on them. And then what he would also do then is he would write down her license plates afterwards. And then, oh, no. And then go to their home a couple of weeks later to question them on the behavior that they did. What? Yeah. How did he? So he had access to like state records where he like would turn the license plate into an address and go ask them after the fact? Yeah. And he would also dress up in disguises. That way the participants wouldn't recognize him from before. So there's a couple ethical violations going on there. Number one, the participants didn't know that they were taking part in a study. Number two, he outright lied to them. Number three, I don't think that there are any instances of him violating confidentiality. I don't think he outed anybody. Um, the primary purpose for getting their license plate number numbers was that he could ask follow-up questions. But certainly collecting that data, if that had gotten out, that could have ruined somebody's life. Now, what decade was this? Uh, his book came out in 1970, and he was a PhD candidate. Okay. So, so at the this... time, there was a giant stigma against homosexuality as well. So he's doing this in a situation where he didn't give people a choice to opt out. And I remember a lot of discuss this discussion around scientific consent in like the 90s and late 80s. So this happened well before that, probably because of studies like this. Exactly. Yeah. So I was going to talk about some of the standards that we have now. This was one of the kind of more high profile studies that led to some of these uh, guidelines and regulations. So now um, the Department of Health and Human Services, FDA, as well as the American Psychological Association have uh, sets of standards and ethical guidelines researchers have to abide by. Shortly after these studies came out, the Department of Health and Human Services came out with something called the Belmont Report. It's just named that based on where it was written. It's published in 1979, and it kind of laid out what researchers should and shouldn't do if they have human subjects. And the three kind of main points that they came up with was that the researchers should have expect for the person. Um, there should be some form of beneficence involved in the study, doing giving them some benefit, and also justice for the participant. And three of the primary uh, requirements would be that the participants would be informed of what they're participating in. There would be some form of assessment of the risk versus benefits to the participants, and that benefit doesn't necessarily have to be for the participant. It could be a benefit for society. All right. So just to make sure I'm getting what you're saying, the participants have to opt into the study. If there's any temporary malfeasance, there has to be justice for it. Mm -hmm. And ideally, there needs to be some benefit to the study. We can't just shock people because shocking people is fun. We have to shock people because we're testing new safety gloves or something. That's correct. Except I would, wouldn't say that the participant always has to be aware of the study beforehand because these are principles that somebody, which would be the IRB, which we'll talk about in a minute, has to weigh these three sorts of things. And there are instances where if the researcher can make an argument that there's a, a lot of benefit to the study, then a little bit of deception might be okay as long as participants are informed shortly thereafter. You probably wouldn't be allowed to shock people to test safety gloves and tell people to grab these mains lines. But maybe if you're saying, hey, there's going to be an electrical shock, uh, it's going to be mild, touch these things. And, you know, as long as the review board says, oh, it's it's, it's one volt, it's safe or whatever. If it's really mild, that might be acceptable. It, it might be. Yeah. So anything involving physical harm is going to have a higher threshold to reach. Okay. So what they look at, the three kind of main criteria that these boards will look at would be physical harm, potential physical harm, potential psychological harm, and then also uh, violations of confidentiality are kind of the three main ways that they view harm. Okay. So going back to the guy from the 70s, I forgot his name already. Humphreys? Yes. He violated confidentiality wildly. And actually, even confidentiality is even a newer concept to a lot of people. I mean, with all the talk of PII and different kinds of information that it's common at workplace, and PII is personally identifiable information. Mm -hmm. If you've held a job in a call center or writing software or doing anything in an office in the past 10 years, you've probably had to talk with someone about PII and your company's rules for managing it. Sounds like that wasn't even on the, on the table or part of the discussion at all back then. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm assuming that 
people had talked about it, but there weren't rigorous standards in place for it. Okay. Yeah, I would have to think that doctors back then respected, like physicians, medical physicians respected their patients' confidentiality, but I don't have anything to cite there. It's one of those things where before things starts getting tracked, we don't know how good or bad it was, right? Like, I'm imagining an old-timey, like, sailing ship, like in the, the 1600s, right? There's a physician on the boat. Yeah. Somehow, I don't think he's going to keep all the medical records <laughs> safe from everybody. He's like, oh, this guy got scurvy. Everyone go eat some fucking oranges. For sure. I'm thinking more like a Mad Men era, where, like, if a doctor finds out that, you know, a man has syphilis, hopefully he wouldn't go tell the person's wife, but... I don't know. I have nothing to cite there. I have no evidence for that. Whew, that's that's really messy. There's a whole lot of ethics there, too, because what if he isn't telling his wife that he has syphilis and he's giving her syphilis? That's another yeah. crime. But absolutely. In, in the Mad Men era, that would be very hard to convict. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of gray area in ethics, too. I've kind of talked about what led up to some of these things. Basically, as a result of the Belmont report. So what came out of that is that the federal government basically said if you have human research or if you're going to collect data on humans, it needs to be reviewed first by a board for ethical concerns. And that's what an institutional review board is or an IRB. Okay, so the IRB, if I have an idea to test the efficacy of catapults by loading people into the catapult and seeing how far I can launch them, the institutional review board would probably look at that and say no. Most likely, yeah. You would have to make a pretty darn good argument for the for the benefits of this. Yeah, what if what if the catapult's really fun? Then it would be fine. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, so they would look at potential harm to the patients, the benefits to society. And you said they'd shoot down my catapult thing unless it was really fun. Yeah, you'd have to come up with some uh, pretty strong justification for that. Okay, I'll, I'll work on it. So basically what an IRB or Institutional Review Board is, is it's a committee that reviews any ethical problems in whatever study you want to do. They could just say, no, you can't do the study, or more likely they would make recommendations on things you could change. And then you are not supposed to go ahead with that study until the IRB has given you the go-ahead. Um, it has to be made up of at least five people, one scientist, one non-scientist. It could just be somebody from the community. Um, when a scientist is saying scientist, do they just mean someone who's part of the program, or do they mean somebody with a PhD? Yeah, so I'm actually not exactly sure how that's defined. I would assume that it's somebody with a PhD and a scientist scientific field, so something ending in ology. Okay, so so any scientist. It could be like a sociologist Correct. or a physicist or something. Correct. It does not have to be like a, a chemist or anything. Okay, so these IRB boards have to have at least one scientist, one non-scientist? Yeah, and then that's the only definite criteria. Uh, they're encouraged to have a mix of men and women, although that's not a requirement. It's also a good idea to have at least one lawyer on the board, although that is also not a requirement. So in theory, the IRBs are a great idea. They'll look at the study, identify any issues, and then uh, then the researcher can go ahead with relative confidence that, that their study is, is safe. Now you say in theory. Yeah, so one really interesting thing about institutional review boards. So first off, these are usually set up um, at a university or an institution. Um, and then a lot of universities will also require that researchers at that institution go through their review board. And then that review board would protect not just the participants because it's the right thing to do, but also for the reputation of the university as well as avoiding uh, legal or civil repercussions. That makes sense. Crossing your I's, dotting your T's, covering your own ass. Don't trust yeah. someone else's board because you don't know how that board was vetted. Yeah, so they're covering their own ass, but then it also happens to keep participants safe. Okay. There is an issue with them, though. Government doesn't require that IRBs keep any central data. Database. We don't even know how many there are in the United States. There's about three to 5,000 is the estimate. And 
Is it possible that an institution has multiple? Uh, I've never heard of that being the case, but I don't think there's any rule that would forbid that. Okay, interesting. But it doesn't have to be an institution at all. There are actually for-profit commercial IRBs. Oh, there's no way there's a conflict of interest there. Yeah, so there have been many problems with that when you're hiring somebody to review your ethics, especially when... uh, One thing that I did come across is that there's no shortage of issues that came up, especially in pharmaceutical research. Pharmaceutical companies will pay a company to look at possible ethical concerns. You know, that would be like a judge saying that your house needs to be searched, but you get to pay the person who searches your house and they hope to retain you as a future client. Oh, goodness. This kind of crap is all over the place and I'm going to touch politics. So I've gone over my history before in the past, but I've contracted in software at more than a dozen places. One of those places was a voting machine company, and the voting machines are governed by this document called the VVSG, the Voluntary Voting Systems Guideline. And these companies pay other auditing companies to check out the code and the machine itself to perform an audit. But it's up to the voting machine company to pay their own auditors. And it's so... uh, I mean, there are certifications for these things, but it's so messed up that these companies are paying to have themselves checked out. Yeah. And this sounds like the same kind of ripe field for corruption. Yeah, it's just a blatant conflict of interest. And I don't mean to say that all pharmaceutical studies are corrupt, but there's no shortage of examples, though. Um, So I'm not directly involved in pharmaceutical research, but I can give you some references to put in the show notes. There was an expose uh, a few years back in a Forbes magazine that highlighted a bunch of these uh, specific examples. I appreciate that. I'll make sure to get that in the show notes. Yeah. And also, I just want to point out on pharmaceutical research, even if the companies are corrupt, that doesn't necessarily mean that the results of the research study are incorrect. It may very well mean that the participants were mistreated. I don't even know why I'm saying this. I, I believe that pharmaceutical research is important, but there's conflicts of interest and ethical concerns a lot of times that go into them. Sometimes it's good to just air our concerns if it's not something that we're intentionally leading people or isn't a thing that's commonly talked about. I know we talk a lot about free speech and at the limits of speech being free, right, we can ask leading questions that are very damaging needlessly. But here, I don't think that's what you're doing. You're not trying to just throw shade at pharmaceutical companies. We're discussing ethics. We're pointing out that there are questions. So no, this is is a fine place to bring this up. And I think our listeners will handle this information responsibly. Yeah, for sure. And in pharmaceutical research, too, I have no doubt that there are a lot of good-intentioned scientists doing the chemistry and, you know, the physiology in them, and a lot of good-intentioned people that work at these clinical sites that show up and do everything by the book. But I think that the main perpetrator of these offenses is kind of the for-profit pharmaceutical companies that then take, take the good science and sell it. Yeah, sometimes corruption isn't even about making a bad medicine available for sale. Sometimes it's just about getting it through the red tape as fast as possible. Yeah. I would have to imagine that sometimes these pharmaceutical companies aren't being corrupt for bad reasons. Maybe they have a good medicine and they are trying to get it to people as fast as possible, not because they're trying to help people, but because the sooner they get their medicine into patients, the sooner they get paid. So if you have good medicine and you have to grease some palms to get it out there, Isn't that ethically, hmm, I don't want to say justified, but it's definitely a gray area that maybe is good for society sometimes. I don't think it's inherently unethical, but I do think it opens the door for a lot of problems. Absolutely. So these commercial IRBs, one of their sort of uh, selling points is that they claim that they'll get you an expedited review process. So exactly what you said. They'll get it out of the research phase and into people's bodies quicker because they have tips and tricks to bypass some of the red tape. And I'm sure some of that's legal and ethical. And when these companies are checked out by whoever checks these companies out, they show them all the legal things. Exactly. Exactly. And then the illegal... 
Okay. So, yeah. So there are definitely potential issues that arise from that. I'm sure that when we do discover real issues, the government or the market does something to try to correct for issues. But I don't know. Do you, do you have examples here? Yeah, I can definitely share some specific examples kind of recently. But um, I, I would refer you to um, the, the link that I'll provide for specific examples of, uh, of ethical misconduct, in okay. the far- at least in the pharmaceutical industry. Okay. Did you have other topics? Do you have questions you want me to ask to prompt you? <laughs> you know, let's talk a little bit more about deception, if that's okay, because that was what had uh, prompted this whole conversation uh, in the first place. Um, you had- Yeah, we discussed it in, in the emails a little bit, and I kind of hinted... I kind of said that deceiving these these students is usually fine because it's usually who's in the study, but yeah. you emailed me like the next day to correct it. Yeah, and I was listening to that, and I was just thinking, based on what I know about you know psychological research, it just didn't quite hit my ears right. And I was thinking that they shouldn't have done that. I wonder if this was before or after you know all these standards were implemented. So I went and I found the article, and uh, you already addressed this on a previous podcast, but the researchers in that particular experiment did uh, disclose um, to the participants what was going on before they even left the study. Um, They also assured them that uh, questioning the methodologies of a study is often a healthy uh, cognitive response, was how they put it. So they had a conversation with these people that's called debriefing them. They were debriefed. And uh, that is the standard. If you involve deception in any study, um, first you'll have to get that past the IRB in general. You have to tell them exactly in what way you're deceiving the person, why you're doing it, and what benefit is going to arise from it. And then you'll have to debrief the participants as soon as is feasible. So we had mentioned the Milgram study earlier. I think a lot of people have this misconception that participants weren't debriefed and they walked away thinking that they might have killed someone. Ugh. And this was well before the Belmont report. And, uh, yeah, hang on, hang on. The Milgram study is the one where they had the scientist or some guy in a lab coat or someone instructing the study participant to shock someone and that person would keep pushing the shock button and they were testing when the person would stop pushing sh- pushing the shock button, right? Yeah, correct. So the, there was nobody actually being shocked. Um, it, was, it was an actor, but yeah, the participants who were not aware of what was going on um, were told to give the actor progressively increasing shocks until it, by, by the last um, round of shocks, the actor was non-responsive. <laughs> non-responsive is a great way to say he looked fucking dead. Yeah. Actually, they couldn't see him at all. In order to keep consistency between participants, the responses were uh, tape recorded. Oh, okay. The way it's portrayed in like YouTube videos and stuff, it always has like a guy in a lab coat pushing some, you know, push pushing some unsuspecting person into the into, into the button and they have a guy on the other side of a pane of glass sitting there writhing. Yeah. If you like, I can I actually have the article. We can provide that in our show notes too. I absolutely would love to put that yeah. up there. Yeah. But it's a short read. Um so yeah, the experimenter was wearing a lab coat. There was an electric chair looking device. <laughs> and so the experimenter brought both the participant and the actor into a room where they strapped the actor in. Oh. But then they went a couple rooms over then and had an intercom system. And from that point forward the uh participant didn't see the actor until the conclusion of the study. The only communication was audio, and that was all on a pre-recorded tape. And then after, it's my understanding that the researcher or the, what's the word for the person administering the, the, the study? What's that person called? Uh, the researcher or the experimenter. Okay, yeah, then the, I'll go with experimenter. So then the experimenter, they had uh, the same set of prompts to, to try to coerce behavior out of the study participant. Yeah, in fact, if the participant expressed that they wanted to leave, there were four 
uh, word-for-word responses that the researcher had, thanks to the effect of, you must continue, uh, you you have no choice, things like that. And one of them was like, this is for the good of science or something, right? Something like that. It'll be in the article. But then what they had kind of decided was that if all four of those responses get exhausted, then they would let, quote-unquote, the participant leave if they were that uncomfortable. But they never actually physically blocked them or held them in. A person, per, per, I imagine at least some participants probably just turned around and walked away. I don't think anybody actually left. There were a Whoa. few... Nobody just left the room. A few of them refused to stop administering shocks, but at least in the initial study, 26 of the 40 participants went all the way to the uh, potentially lethal shock. Goodness. Um, it's my understanding they also re-ran similar experiments with varying amounts of authoritativeness on the part of the experimenter. Yeah, they manipulated all sorts of variables. I think one was the assertiveness of the experimenter. They did the proximity from the uh, participant to the to the actor. Oh, so make him like walk up some stairs and go to the building across the street or whatever uh actually just believing that the person is just in the very next room as you as opposed to a few rooms down for example i think i misunderstood are we talking about the distance between the actor getting shocked and the person doing the shocking okay so that's the proximity yeah correct that's the proximity i was referring to okay i got you now yeah and they manipulated things like that the intensity of the shocks things like that and he got all sorts of data i think he actually compiled these studies into a into a book but kind of the famous one was uh the one i'll give you a link to and that was in 1963 so this isn't just random torture. This was carefully controlled, carefully monitored, and there were lots of different variables controlled for over many trials. Yeah, that's correct. I wouldn't say, I mean, many is relative. In this particular study, um, there were 40 participants, at least for the first one. Yeah, but that's just the one with the lab coat. Then they correct. did the one where the guy was wearing other stuff. And yeah. That's that's the many I mean. But yeah, yeah I'm slicing hairs here. Oh, you're good. Um, so by today's standards, even though he debriefed the participants, and he also followed up with them too, and I think something like 80% of the participants weeks later so that they were happy to have participated in it. Um, So it doesn't seem that there was any major psychological harm done to them, but that still would not be considered ethical today. So obviously the people were deceived. Deception is permitted in some circumstances, but the whole bit about making them ask to leave four times is not okay. Uh, One of the rights that participants have is the right to withdraw from a study without penalties at any time. So nowadays, if somebody says, you know, I want out, there would have to be an extremely good reason that I can't even think of to not honor that person's wishes. Okay. That's that's all good to know. So we're not going to be trapped in a lab and experimented on by Cave Johnson and given neurotoxin by GLaDOS. Yep. Sorry. I don't know if you've played Portal. Um, I've seen you play Portal. Oh, the jokes just don't hit home if the other person hasn't played. Never mind. You had a huge stack of papers there. Was there another topic you wanted to discuss after deception? Or do you have more examples of deception? Yeah, I can give you some kind of more benign examples of of deception. Sure. Sure. Digging into the, the nuances of what might barely get by or might barely get rejected today is probably more useful than looking at these extremes. Yeah. All right. So one of the things that cognitive psychologists have studied is false memories or just distortions in memory. There was a series of studies done by Elizabeth Loftus throughout the 80s until present day. And uh, she had studied some ways that we can kind of implant false memories into people. Um, So kind of a more benign example is uh, Rodiger and McDermott had these lists of words and they would try to prompt people to remembering a word that actually wasn't in a list. And <laughs> so they give you a list of 10 things, A, Apple, B, banana, C, cat, and they come back and be like, all right, now tell me about chimera. Clearly that was the C word. Yeah. Um, so I can give you kind of a specific example. Um, 
So first off, I'll point out that they deceived participants by not telling them exactly what they were studying. I think that they were told them something that they were just studying normal recall, okay. if memory serves. What they were what they were actually doing was seeing if they could make somebody think that they remembered seeing a word that wasn't there. I, I can see why this would be very difficult to try to study if people are fully informed. Yeah, exactly. And so you would be compromising the integrity of your methodology by telling them what you're actually studying. But would they be told there in a study about memory? Yeah, exactly. So that's a good point. One of the big things that the IRB, IRBs make sure that you have is informed consent. And usually a person will have to sign a form beforehand. And the researcher will just kind of give a little snippet about what they're studying. It might just say that we're interested in uh, processes that affect how well re we remember things. Um, in this case, they were actually trying to elicit false memories, but telling the participant that would compromise the integrity of the study. So it's deception if you don't tell them that. I see. But um, you have to tell them that afterwards. Exactly. And that's the debriefing. Exactly. And so the researcher at that point, before the study, would have had to have told them what they were studying, why deception was necessary, what they're hoping to learn, and also why they don't think any harm would come to the participant. So that one sounds fairly benign. I presume that one made it through and all the way to becoming an academic paper that people could read. Yep. And there were no known issues or anticipated issues with it, and everyone's fine. Except the one guy who got abducted by aliens, yep. those fake memories. Yep. Sorry. Absolutely. That's a poorly... There's a, in the UFO community, there's this whole notion of implanted memories. We should probably do a whole episode about it. Yeah, I can definitely get you some links on that. Interesting. Um, one, uh, also when I'm not an expert in something, I'll just offer to get you links if I can. One uh, kind of fun example from the study I was just talking about, one example of what they might have done was they might have had somebody read a, a list of words. And by the way, what they would do after the subject would read a list of words is later they would have them write down as many as they could remember. Okay. After some amount of time. And then the researcher might be like, oh, hey, there's a word here. Are you sure there isn't something between those two or whatever they did? So what they would do is they would have a study, a, a participant study a list of about 12 words. And so I have it right in front of me. One of the examples was the words mad, fear, hate, rage, temper, fury, ire, and about and a few other ones. But all anger words. Okay. But yeah. you didn't say anger. Exactly. Okay. And so the participant oftentimes has another task to do for a few minutes, and then they go back, write down how many words they remember. Sure enough, a lot of people write the word anger down. And then you can actually get some percentage of people that say that not only do they think that, that it was on there, but they actually remember seeing the word anger. Interesting. So, yep. And then... Uh, so, oh, go ahead. So we talk a lot about evidence, and we try to, as often as possible... I don't want to say categorize or organize what kinds of evidence are better than others, but we do have to say that some kinds of evidence are more useful in certain conditions. Like, you know, a photograph is better than hearsay. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, a story or secondhand recall or, or having a witness versus having a camera, it's just not as good. Even if the witness is 100% trustworthy, people remember things that don't happen sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another kind of more applicable example. So what psychologists talk about a lot of times is ecological validity. That's the extent to what you're doing in the lab can be generalized to the real world. Okay. So it, Clearly, we can't take this anger thing and say everybody's fake all the time. Yeah, it's but, kind of a fun example, but you might ask when that actually you know comes into play in the real world. And I'm not saying it doesn't, but it's hard to think of an example where it might. Oh, yeah. We can't then say that everyone misremembers emotion words, but we can say that is in the realm of possibility. This yeah. didn't rule that out. Yeah. So there's actually one researcher, uh, one cognitive psychologist named Elizabeth Loftus, and she actually, her work was aimed at studying false memories in a lot of different contexts. And she was actually um, kind of influential in showing that witness testimony in courts of law isn't always very valid or isn't always 
super accurate. I'm, I'm with you. I've seen a lot of research in that vein. Yeah. So kind of one of the classic ones that she did was she would show people a scenario, a video of a car um, running through a stop sign. And in some of the experiments, it would hit another car. And they would ask the participant to pay attention. And then afterwards, they'd be asked questions about it. And what they found was that they could get the participants to change their answers based on how the researcher asked the question. So how fast was the car moving when it went through the stop sign? How fast was it moving when it sped through the stop sign? How fast was it going when it hit the other car? How fast was it going when it smashed into the other car? And people would say that the car was moving faster if the researcher used the word smash instead of hit. And they would be confident in these answers. The listener can't see, but my eyes are going wide at how subtle the manipulation can be. Yeah. And wow. So now okay. imagine a police interrogator asking these kinds of leading questions. Yeah. And often the police want to get to an answer so they can yeah. you know, be done, close their case, move on. If they think they have you, yeah, they'll so, ask the most leading questions they can. Yeah. No, exactly. So one thing I'll just say um, that cognitive psychologists have learned that is applicable is that memory isn't like a camera in your head that just records everything. We remember uh, key points and gists. And then as we're recalling stuff, we fill in a lot of the blanks. So that makes us susceptible to these sort of erroneous memories where we might fill in the blanks based on our own biases or from uh, outside pressure. Wow. That is a lot to take in. I think now is probably a good point to to cut it off. Was there anything else you wanted to say before we moved on? Because there's no way we're going to be able to unpack all of this in the normal discussion piece. Absolutely. Let me just see if there was anything kind of critical. Yeah, the last thing I'll add is um, that researchers behave according to the prescribed ethics for a number of reasons, Um, not just because it's the right thing to do and because it's regulated by organizations like the APA and the Department of Health and Human Services. The American Psychologist Association? Yes, yes. So the APA has actually released a very rigorous set of standards, more rigorous than some other sciences. So other sciences have actually adopted the APA standards. Um, But also the oftentimes the researcher's reputation will lie on this. If they fabricated evidence, then... They're ruined. Yeah, yeah, they're ruined. Um, And we could go into like the Wakefield studies in 98 and 2002, where he claimed that there was a link between autism and vaccinations. Yeah, that guy can't do science anymore. He has to rely on other things to make a living. Yeah. So when we talk about ethics, the last thing I would say is that it's not just about treating participants right while you have them in your lab, but then also in publishing. There's a lot of ethics there, too. You can't fabricate data. You can't cherry pick data. You can't plagiarize from someone else um, without giving them credit. So ethics really is a big area. We just kind of talked about the um, ones directly dealing with human participants today. But uh, a, a good scientist will have to think about all these different kinds of ethics before they contribute to the you know, science. Fantastic. I'm glad to hear that it's not just all the kindness of people's hearts. Yep. D- did you have anything you wanted to plug? Any books, any websites, any papers you've been on that maybe people should read? Um, we can link. I'm a co-author on two papers. There's really no reason to to push them aside from just the listener's own curiosity, but um, they deal with uh, visual word recognition, which is how quickly and accurately people recognize words. I helped uh, my advisor collect data and run some statistical analyses, and I find them fascinating, so you can read them if you want. Fantastic. Thanks for coming, and I hope that maybe someday we'll have you back on or at least get your input on some things in the future. I, I hope to have more things to contribute by then. Thank you. We can record another one at the end, and then I'll splice in the best parts. Through editing, can you make me sound intelligent? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you did a ton of research. 
around the algorithm radicalization pipeline? I mean, I know a little bit about it, but I haven't done nearly as much active research on this topic as you have. Well, to be perfectly honest, there isn't a whole lot of research that can be done on the part of like you or I, because I mean, we don't have all the money for large scale research grants. And the people that do, a lot of the research is still underway. But the basic idea behind the premise, and sometimes this is called uh, algorithm amplification. The idea is that the algorithms that are in charge of promoting site engagement, like clicks, consuming media, and doing whatever it can in order to get your traffic back at the site and keep you there as long as possible. Because even if none of the content is directly making revenue, they can post ads and make revenue that way. So when Netflix tells you, you know, you might be interested in, and then it gives you a couple things after the, the last episode of whatever you were just watching and tries to make you watch another. Yep, that is one example of these kinds of algorithms. Okay. Uh, YouTube is another direct example. And, you know, Facebook has its own equivalent of these things. Uh, a lot of the really large scale media uh, companies on the internet have some algorithm for promoting engagement to the content that they themselves serve. And when in the pursuit of increasing engagement, if there is a particular trend that the algorithm is able to spot because just a bunch of other people are doing certain things, like they watch one video and then at the end of that video, 80% of the people who actually finished it went to watch this other video from start to finish, then it's got a pretty good idea that maybe it should recommend that video to you. Yeah, there's a category of machine learning that focuses around clustering like data points. Yeah. And Netflix actually had a prize a while back to improve their algorithm. They anonymized all of the Netflix accounts, but they put out this data set with millions of records that had a person, what the person watched, what they liked or what they disliked. And the winning algorithm, it wound up generating its own categorizations based on all of this group of people liked movie X. It categorized the movies, whether it was a sci-fi or a lawyer movie or a drama, without ever knowing what those categories were. It inferred that purely from the ratings people gave it. The algorithm didn't know that, but it found other movies that had ratings from similar people that, that in this group had liked. It found other movies in this group that had been liked, but not by everyone, and suggested them to those missing from that group that had watched that movie. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, as part of this prize, they were able to make a, a version of the Netflix algorithm that was like 10% better. And now I have to go link to that in the show notes, because it was actually really interesting to read about and hear about. Yeah. When you step away from things that are as innocuous as most of the content on the Netflix, and you're talking about something that's a bit more broad and difficult to curate all the content for, such as YouTube, the premise goes that if somebody makes something that is sensational or extreme... Logan Paul mocking dead bodies. Yeah, sure, we can go for a specific example. But things that are like that, and then the algorithm wants to keep on encouraging more engagement, and then it keeps on linking similar content to that in order to get that engagement. It has no idea what the content is, as you were saying, like with the movies. It just knows that people. a lot of people in the same group liked it, so it's going to suggest people that are close or suggest it to people that are close to that group. Yeah, it like it has data to suggest how you will react when presented with something. And if that reaction is more engagement, then it goes for it. And it doesn't really care about what that content is. The premise is that in a lot of these types of things, these people tend to get consumed by the radical content that is available on the platform. And then you have this extra effect because they're consumed by it. 
they th- their own worldview shifts. They they don't really get exposed to alternative viewpoints all that much. They are not really told what other things could possibly be the result of the effects that they observe. Uh, so yeah, it shifts their worldview, and it's just at least in part the result of these algorithms. So if you watch one old History Channel special about aliens, it might suggest one about flat Earth, and then because there's still a vibrant and active flat Earth community, you might start arguing with that, and you watch a few more, and you're like, oh, they have points, and maybe when they've reached the limit of your scientific knowledge, you become a believer, and then gradually you're seeing, intermixed with what you would normally watch on YouTube, a bunch of flat Earth videos, and after a while, you're a flat Earther. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's the basic premise, anyway. I actually saw something just like that in a documentary about Flat Earth that then pivoted halfway through to talk about QAnon. I guess I have to go dig up that documentary. I think I've even cited it before, and I shared it with you, didn't I? But it was like two hours long, but it was really well made. I don't think you shared that one with me. Okay, I will get a link to that, because that's worth a watch. Okay, so this idea has been talked about a fair bit, and I have numerous sources to kind of explain some of the mechanisms going on here and what some of the opinions of what is going on regarding algorithm amplification, as it's commonly referred to. Uh, One of the sources, The Hill, uh, they specifically point out, like, algorithms, like on Facebook, helped organize Boogaloo, which is a militia cult. I've always thought the Boogaloo was the coming race war, but maybe I've gotten the poorly understood version that's been filtered through mainstream newscasters that have never actually considered participating in a boogaloo. I don't know much about boogaloo myself, but uh, the article referred to boogaloo as a militia cult. That sounds plausible enough. Yeah. Whether it's a race war or whatever it is, it is some. It is a code word for some violent thing that people in the alt-right were looking for in the past. Yeah, and the same article points out Twitter's algorithms and how it helped proliferate QAnon into what it is today. Yeah, because if your goal is to maximize engagement, you're not really caring whether that engagement is positive or negative. Mm -hmm. You're counting the amounts of likes, dislikes, retweets, whatever. You don't care why it's happening. You care that it happens more often. Yep. Another one that's come up a number of times is the Christchurch mass shooting in New Zealand back in 2019. No good can come from this. (laughs) Probably not. But New Zealand, being a functional government, near as I can tell, actually commissioned a investigation into how the hell did that happen? And that commission produced a 792-page report, which was initially not public, but has since been made public. And oh, so functional democracies release their investigations? Yes. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's amazing. And in that investigation, they they actually go into a huge amount of detail. They have a, an executive summary page, and even the executive summary is multiple pages long. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, it's pretty in-depth. There's a lot of information there, and I, there's no way we would have enough time to unpack it all. But the part that's relevant to this particular discussion is they were able to acquire his internet activity going back years and get information like from those websites uh, about his postings, what the, the content of those postings were. And he himself volunteered that a lot of his radicalization was the result of YouTube videos. And when they looked over his internet history, that that was actually really well supported. He didn't do a whole lot of posting. Most of his posting that he did do was on Facebook, but not places like you would normally presume, like the 8chan or 4chan. Uh, didn't do a whole lot of posting there. 
but uh, most of the content that he consumed that was white supremacist was from YouTube itself. Yeah, that makes sense. YouTube has a lot of horrible shit in every direction. Yeah. Unfortunately, they can't just... Let me rephrase that. Unfortunately, they haven't chosen. Because they can, right? YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, these people, they can get things off their platform. The cognitive dissonance guys always point out that if a nipple shows up, it's gone in minutes. People posting it get warned, they get infractions. It can be gone, but any policy that stops this sort of terrorist indoctrination that makes people susceptible to uh, all this racist shit, white supremacist shit, would also block a large amount of conservative politicians. Yep. So if they do the decent thing, they will be accused of censorship, even though it's their platform, and they can do that if they want. And we had that argument just after the Jan 6 insurrection. We got Trump off of Twitter, and Twitter's become a more peaceful, sane place, and society at large is better for it. Mm -hmm. And we're still having discussions about censorship. It's almost like people don't realize speech has consequences. Yeah, most people don't. Most conservatives don't quite understand what free speech means. Even a lot of liberals think that free speech doesn't have real consequences. They think that you can just have people say anything and that it doesn't change anything unless it's good ideas. People only act on the good ones. Yeah, no one's perfect here, but I only know of one side that's trying to use it as an armed political point. Yeah, lots of conservatives want to use freedom of speech as a shield for their very shitty ideas. They say they want to kill Jews, and then they want to defend their right to say that horrible shit with free speech, and like, well, I didn't threaten any specific Jews, so it's allowed. I didn't violate the terms of service. Uh, Randall Monroe, he is the creator of XKCD. I believe he was quoting someone else. I could be wrong about that, but in one of his comics, he did point out that saying, hey, free speech is like the ultimate concession, because you're essentially saying that the best argument in favor of your idea is that it's literally not illegal to express it. It might be in the mouse over text. I will have a link to that in the show notes. <laughs> it is in the mouse over text. So if you're on mobile, press and hold. If you're uh, on a PC, wave your mouse over the comic and get the extra bit of text. When someone says, it's free speech, I'm allowed to say it. Well, like, yeah, yeah, you technically Congress can't stop you from saying it. Now give me a reason why it's good. And I keep doing that. Right? I keep calling out conservatives. On LinkedIn recently, I've been calling Kevin, uh, Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, a Republican from California. I keep calling him a damn dirty traitor because he is. He voted to overturn the election on January 6th, and that makes him a traitor. Just, that's it. It's, you voted to get rid of the Constitution. Fuck you. Then people are like, he's not a traitor. The Constitution allows you to vote for that. I'm like, yeah, to prevent other traitors from taking control of the government. Or when a state lies and puts forward the wrong vote, or when somebody tampers with the state's vote, that's what that clause in the Constitution is for. It wasn't intended to justify arbitrary bullshit behavior like trying to overthrow an election. So these people are confusing what is legal with what is ethical and they don't get that just because a law allows a thing to happen doesn't mean that it should happen by that logic some people shouldn't be allowed to speak like nazis and like paradox of tolerance nazis shouldn't be allowed to speak because they are harmful and instigate harm of their own free will you cannot have free speech and groups that do that and they're like but but nazis are legal and I'm like but there's no other reason to be a nazi give me one reason why nazis are good and no one ever does but then they're like they pull out that old tired trite shit where they're like I might not agree with Nazis, but I'll die to defend their right to say shit. I'm like, no, you fucking wouldn't. You, you weren't in the military. You're, you're a fucking 70-year-old retired tax accountant in Florida. You're not, no. You wouldn't die to defend, no one's going to kill you so that Nazis can speak. That's, no. You're already white. Nobody, the Nazis aren't going to kill you. Fuck off. Ah, 
Sorry, just people get me worked up. I noticed. And I'm pretty sure it's LinkedIn's algorithm putting me near a bunch of these people to maximize engagement. Very well could be, yeah. Hey, we came full circle. Woo. Uh, so I mean, there's still a whole bunch of research ongoing about algorithm amplification. But some researchers from, I am not going to be able to pronounce that. Let's go with from Switzerland and Brazil. Which source are you looking at? Uh, under TechCrunch. Yeah, Switzerland's École Polytechnique Fédérale de Lausanne and Federal University of Minas Gerais. All right, so from two universities in Switzerland. Oh, one of them is Switzerland, the other one's Brazil. Oh, okay. But yeah, researchers from these two locations, they... How the fuck do we get those two locations? There's some random pipeline between Brazil and Switzerland? What is this? They don't even share a language. Okay, whatever. But yeah, they conducted a study, and there's a link directly to said study uh, that we have in the show notes. That's the ACM.org link? Yes. Okay. I haven't read it. What's in the study? Uh, Well, it makes claims that they found a distinct pipeline effect on YouTube regarding radical content. This pipeline is slow. It took place over the course of years when they observed it. Hang on. The pipeline is slow to radicalize people or the formation of the pipeline was slow? The radicalization of people, that pipeline. Okay. Yeah, like radicalizing someone is not a a quick thing to happen. It takes time, uh, at least according to them. And they did their research even without the presence of uh, personalization. So like there's the the broad patterns, but then there's like the more specific recommendations based off of personal data. And so even in the absence of that more specific recommendations, they still manage to find a pipeline or so they claim. And they also do make a point to say that they're not sure if YouTube is actually to blame. That's considered outside the scope of the study. Okay, so they're not claiming YouTube is intentionally radicalizing anyone. They're just claiming that it is. Pretty much. Okay. And I'm pretty sure YouTube's not trying to. It doesn't help them to have more white supremacists or anything. Yeah. It even seems pretty antithetical to where YouTube is positioned. They want as many people watching their stuff as possible. Yeah. So that is one study uh, that is in favor of the algorithm amplification that has been published, which is interesting. And of course, I do have to, at some point, I might as well be now, uh, point out once again that these algorithms are not nefarious by design, not nefarious in nature. They simply exist to find patterns and use those patterns to enhance engagement among the people on the website. And then coincidentally, getting people near white supremacist ideas raises engagement Yes, because it starts arguments, it causes people to come back for more of the same content, it does all these things that makes YouTube more profitable. And it is understandable to people who are not technically inclined to ask themselves, well, okay, how can you engineer something like this and not be aware of this side effect? And that has to do with machine learning and how much guessing is involved in machine learning yep i see here you have a link to how machines learn by cgp gray it's a great video it is it's what 10 15 minutes long yep and it has that little robot they put through school Mm -hmm. i haven't seen this one a long time but uh did you want to discuss that or do you want me to just to to explain one simpler algorithm because i've done a lot of machine learning stuff yeah well i i wanted to i I don't want to go into the nitty-gritty of how machine learning works. I I do consider that more or less outside the scope of this conversation. Oh, I wanted to do the Monte Carlo box of golf balls dynamite example. If you absolutely want to, then go for it. Okay, we'll do it in a few minutes, I guess. Okay. You were saying? But I I did feel it important that uh, some approachable 
mechanism for explaining the basics of machine learning and how much guessing is involved. Teaching without teaching, as CGP Grey puts it, is involved in the whole process, and it might make it a bit more clear how something as accidental as radicalization, as oxymoronic as that sounds, may occur. So for what we can say here, uh, there's one very simple computer algorithm that uses a large amount of random numbers to attempt to get to an optimal solution, right? Uh, I like considering golf courses and golf shots because it's simple enough for people to understand, right? Mm -hmm. You want to get your golf ball as close to the hole or into the hole if you can, right? Now, a computer, not having knowledge of how golf works beyond the rules of whatever physics simulation has been coded into it, doesn't have any good way to get to an answer. And a human who doesn't understand the physics of golf might not have a good answer either. But what these two together as a team can do, they might try every single pulse possible ball trajectory and then pick the best one. So a human might write a little bit of code that picks every direction from the golf tee and picks every amount of force and picks every angle. But pretty soon you realize, wait, there's trillions, quadrillions of possibilities. So you can't try everyone. That just simply isn't practical. But you still don't know where to start. So what if you randomize each of those values? 360 degrees, maybe you care down like fractions of a degree. So maybe you have 3,600 directions from the golf tee, different amounts of power, depending on how you measure that. Maybe you want to try a, a million different levels of power, you know, how many joules or something. And the angle, right? And again, you from straight out in front of you to straight up, and maybe you want 90 degrees, but you want down to the 0.1 level. So you have 900 there, right? Well, you can't try all those in any sort of efficient time. Imagine if you just try random stuff. You know, the metaphorical equivalent of putting a bucket of golf balls on top of a, a, a package of dynamite and setting it off. You just launch golf balls everywhere, you blow a huge hole in your fake golf course, and then you go find the golf ball that's closest to the hole or in the hole, and you look up what numbers went into that one, right? If you're not quite at the hole, maybe you try a bunch of numbers randomly around that one, and you feed in more random stuff. So if it was at angle 82 with force 100,000, 45 degree angle up, pick a whole bunch of numbers close to that one and see if it gets closer. After a few iterations of this, you get to something that looks like a very good golf shot. Doesn't take a lot of computation power, you didn't have to check all quadrillion possibilities, but you still got to an answer in relatively short time. And the algorithms from YouTube and Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter do this kind of stuff, where when they found groups of people, they will try throwing other tweets, posts, links, videos at us, and if we like them, it counts that as a hit, and it starts sharing those hits with the rest of the group. It doesn't know what works, but it tries and sees what sticks. Yeah. Was that too in-depth, or was that okay? Yeah, it was fine. Ah, I've disappointed you. Yes. <laughs> I can only ever disappoint you. Improbably accurate. You're like... You're like that father that's just always disappointed. Are, are you my pod father? I got to make these disappointed squinty eyes at me. He hates my puns. Perfect. Yes. Well, yeah. Should we go simulate this with real dynamite at a golf course? No. What if we ask permission first, but just don't tell them the quantity of dynamite? I feel like they'll still say no. And honestly, any golf course that would say yes, we might want to turn around to walk the other way from. What am I going to do with all this dynamite? Something else. <laughs> okay, fine. Not that either. Fine. I won't put it in the toilet. Why do you even have a toilet next to the microphones? I, what? You did what with your station? Oh, you didn't see? Look right here, man, behind the desk. I, you do you. Okay. So how these machines learn factors into how this pipeline was presumably accidentally made. It doesn't make sense. It's not profitable for anyone to make a white supremacy pipeline. No. We discussed a few key examples with the Christchurch shooting and some of the initial Q stuff. Was there anything else you wanted to cover on this before we move on? Mm, I think we covered all the the bases. And there's plenty of reading, too, that we're, we have in the show notes to yeah. cover uh, more of the information. To cover that, we have uh, The Hill, PBS, 
TechCrunch and a study that they link to from those two universities. We have the Royal Commission report about the Christchurch shooting, How Machines Learn by CGP Grey, How to Radicalize a Normie by Innuendo Studios, and Randall Monroe's XKCD on free speech. And I'll dig up uh, some explanation for the Netflix X Prize and that Flat Earth documentary I mentioned. Yep. John, I felt something move. Got a little wiggle out of it? A little wiggle. Just a little wiggle. We were going over some of the sources. We were talking about de-radicalizing people. And I pointed out that only recently have I heard the normal news sources I go through start talking about the notion that people don't respond to facts and evidence. Uh, just after we started this podcast, actually, mm-hmm. people started, like the Cognitive Dissonance podcast, the Scathing Atheists, those people, they started talking about how you need to have one-on-one conversations and accept and find middle ground or do that kind of stuff to begin convincing people. And one of our sources said that too, but he said it a couple of years ago. Yeah, there's a few different flavors of that general message. Yeah. Uh, what else did we cover before? Oh, yeah, you mentioned the best anti-bullying defense. Uh, well, yeah, one of the more effective ways uh, to uh, reduce bullying, and in particularly any kind of psychological trauma from bullying, is to step in and defend someone who is being bullied. Not only does it prevent the immediate effects of the bullying, but it demonstrates to the victim that there are decent people that will defend other people. And that's a, a very positive reinforcing notion. God, you sound like a fucking episode of My Little Pony. So to lay into that and try to recap some of the useful parts of the conversation we didn't get before this, for a lot of people, it doesn't matter how much the evidence or how wrong they are. Or mm-hmm. And you mentioned that if you felt, and I'm going to put words in your mouth, I'm sorry, but I'm sure you'll correct I'll me. correct, yeah. You mentioned that you felt that if we can expose the cracks in someone's ideology, that they will have to reckon with that somehow. And I rebutted by saying people just recede because they don't consciously hold any ideology. Well, uh, there is no one size fits all. That's the first critique to your wording I'm going to put out there, that different people are radicalized for different reasons. Some people are just in it for the lulls, or at least they think they are. Some people have just been indoctrinated by, for example, their parents for whatever ideology that they have, and they literally don't have any of the mechanisms to understand otherwise. But for some people, like maybe not exactly like what has been put forth by uh, the other video you linked me from Innuendo Studios, the alt-right playbook. Uh, So in the video, they have somebody who is just being slowly indoctrinated by people that are infiltrating his normal social groups. And these groups uh, stratify, is that the right word? They self-segment, they self-select. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. And that happens over time as discussions become more and more political and people don't want to engage in politics because there's the prevailing opinion that politics is toxic, which is not always untrue. In fact, it's frequently true, but it's also necessary. And to repeat a phrase that you put out there years ago, politics is the set of rules by which we all agree to live. That sounds like something I would say. Yeah. I would also say politics is everything. Politics is how we distribute power. There is no topic that isn't political. And even people recently who've tried to say things like, masks aren't political, they're science. I'm like, fucking science is political. There are people who vote because they think evolution isn't real. So yes, everything is politics. So then these groups that have these rules, like you're saying, they can leave anything out based on whether or not the group agrees or disagrees that a thing is or isn't contentious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's uh, something they briefly touch on in the video. But for some people who, who get indoctrinated 
through mechanisms where uh, they are being presented with a particular reality and they want to uncover more and more about that reality, exposing cracks to those people. And like, it's not as simple as saying like, oh, you're wrong, look at this. It's more along the lines of, well, are you sure that that makes sense? Because even it itself, can't be necessarily consolidated with this other thing that it itself is mentioning. Like, sounds kind of weird. Or trying to appeal to, uh, regrettably, anecdotal evidence. You're like, well, if they say this, then, like, have you ever experienced that? In softer approaches like that, and then getting them to question certain threads. And those threads often lead to more questions, and that can de-radicalize those kinds of people. I'm going to go back to the person that inspired me to start this podcast. Mm-hmm. Me and him carpooled every day for six months. Yep. He simultaneously believed the Earth was flat and a disc. You mentioned him. And simultaneously believed the Earth was hollow and a sphere. He fully well understood that this was geometrically impossible. He was a software developer with a master's degree or a PhD. Kids, two houses, two houses. One was a fixer-upper he was going to rent. He gave up math, the foundation of his mortgages, his ability to count his children, and the root of his profession in computer science before he let the ideology crack. To the best of my knowledge, he never did. Okay. I mean, that seems to be a crack in your ideology. (laughs) I mean, if you disagree with me now, I think you're disproving your own thing, but I don't want to go there. That's a bullshit arguing tactic. Uh, First thing I think of is uh, you've told me plenty of times, and I'm quite confident plenty of other people as well, the value of anecdotal evidence. Yeah, but I mean, every Q supporter is somebody who's believing mutually contradictory things. There are tons of people who cite Pizzagate as a source. Well, people that believe mutually contradictory things and people that realize they are mutually contradictory things are, these are two separate things. I can easily see this, this former coworker of yours acknowledging that these things are exclusive with one another as simple lip service to you. That seems like an easy thing to believe. I suppose it's possible that he lied or misrepresented those things, but they're so on the surface and he demonstrated his ability to do college level math. Mm-hmm. Like he understood these things. I don't see how somebody can believe both of these things. The only were they religious? Not overly. They're about as religious as a typical modern Q supporter might be. That sounds very religious to me. Well, a lot of <laughs> a lot of modern Q supporters don't go to church every day. They don't do what when you say religious, right? What a lot of people think is somebody going to church every week and you know reading the Bible constantly. But he generally did appear to hold a belief that Jesus kind of existed. But he also said he didn't like organized religion. So he's in that category of sort of modern Christian that didn't attend a church. Yeah, there seems to be quite a few of those. Yeah, that seems to be a pretty common American level of religiosity. Well, where I was going to go with that was when you have an easy uh, reference for mysterious higher power that seems to defy logic and explanation. I mean, you yourself frequently point out that people who are indoctrinated into religion, even if the religion itself is not particularly damaging in their particular case, it still exposes problems of rationalization and thought. Totally. If someone thinks that faith is a valid way to learn something or a valid way to gain knowledge for religion, they are predisposed to thinking faith is an acceptable way to learn something elsewhere. Yeah. So taking that same thread, if they were religious enough to believe that God exists and is capable of defying logic, then what is there to them repurposing that particular belief? Uh, I think you're almost entirely correct in this. When discussing with him, he did make it clear for other contradictions 
that God could do anything and that anything that we didn't understand was likely divinely inspired or divinely managed. Yeah. Because we had lots of discussions, again, carpooling every day for a good long time. Often he'd bring up like a bleeding statue or something. And sometimes he would point out that or acknowledge that one was fake. There was one where there was uh, toilet water that was leaking from a nearby building and it looked like a Virgin Mary statue was dripping water out and people were drinking the water and blessing each other with it. And it was found to be a leaky toilet in the next building over. Neat. Pretty fucking awesome. <laughs> I think it was gray water. It wasn't black water, though. You know, it wasn't like poop water. It was yeah. like what went in the tank. So, yeah, at least it wasn't sewage. If people were drinking sewage from that incident, that would have some interesting religious implications. Thought we thought religion was shit already. I mean, they don't think it's shit. (laughs) So delicious. It has to be. (laughs) But yeah, uh, even though this guy thought that God could justify anything or do anything, I don't see how that invalidates any of my points. I mean, he's still believing something totally self-contradictory, inserting nonsense. Well, just because we can label nonsense doesn't make it not nonsense. I'm not trying to say that it's not, but I don't, I have a hard time believing that someone that is as invested in trying to figure out this irrational, illogical world is willing to accept that literally everything is irrational. Sorry, as soon as you start picking at one thing, even if you do convince him that like okay sorry i should state that this is me kind of predicting the counter argument here sure but if we were to expose a crack in one of his ideologies and he's like oh right okay sure and then uh tries to cover that up with well okay that that still makes sense because the world is irrational and god can make whatever and you could do this quite a bit but i have a hard time believing that he would accept it for everything because at that point it, it just it kind of becomes somewhat nihilistic in that you're just you're conceding all possible thought but in uh, conspiracy theories one of the big motivating factors is like you're trying to figure things out (laughs) they're horribly misguided so there's a whole lot to unpack there yeah right like most conspiracy theorists their definition of research is garbage of course uh they're trying to figure it out none of them are willing to really invest effort or time or, or money and the ones that do often dig themselves out or go on to write books about it it's debatable whether or not those people actually you know who are profiting from the conspiracy theories actually believe any of it but this touches back on the core reason that i wanted us to start a podcast yeah i legitimately feel that something on the order of one in two one in three one in four americans and by extension all humans simply cannot process logic like we can have this discussion for this one guy right Mm -hmm. and you might convince me that you know he's got this very shaky patchwork set of things but internally he trusts and believes in logic and then we can move on to the next person who believes in Q, believes that, you know, the the, the basement at pizza, at, at Planet Pizza was a metaphor for the underground child movement stuff. And we can go through and dig through all of that. We can talk about the people who believe that the Suez Canal was smuggling uh, children for Hillary's whatever thing. And then we can show them evidence that there was no children being smuggled by Hillary. And we can rationalize each and every one of these things, or the much more simple and parsimonious explanation can be put forward of a huge amount of humans can't do logic. They just have disevidentia. They just they, they just can't do it. They just yeah. can't they can't take evidence, connect it to other evidence. Sure. So I don't disagree with you there. Okay. <laughs> I literally it's a, can't. It's okay. <laughs> oh, fuck. The argument is so strong. I'm like, humans are stupid. You're like, fuck. No, the, the, the humans are stupid. Okay. 
It's <laughs> absolutely true. Uh, and everybody is a little bit stupid about something at some point, and some people are very demonstrably more stupid about more things than other people. That is also true. But Stop bringing my social skills into this. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, yes, this, this co-worker of yours is definitely one of those cases where, sorry, to clarify, less capable of processing logic and evidence, of course. That's how they got to where they were in the conspiracy theories that they shared with you. And maybe that wasn't even all the conspiracy theories. I don't know. I'm certain he was softballing it. That sounds very likely. Uh, but specifically on the, the topic of the original assertion of demonstrating weak points, uh, cracks in the, the argument or the ideology. Now, while I more or less do accept this as a possible tactic, in, in no way do I... Am I going to claim that it is practical? It, it just isn't. Because the the argument that has to be made, like even when you have a perfectly sound argument and you're talking to somebody who is reasonably logical, sometimes the argument needs to be presented in such a way that it, it is something that is digestible or receptive to the person that's hearing it. And it's not even like a matter of the content of the argument. It's just the presentation of it. May I? Yeah. So if you're going to put forward cracks in someone's ideology, you have to know what their ideology is. Yeah, that's one step. So if someone doesn't have a firm ideology, they will be plastic. They will mutate and change just to avoid the argument. Most people don't like to be wrong. If they do have a firm ideology, then mental gymnastics exist. It is honest to question someone's sources. It is dishonest to question the 15 sources that all corroborate. But if they're all from mainstream media and scientists, and the question is whether or not the Jews control mainstream media and the scientists, you will never be able to use those as sources to convince that person. You need to know what their ideology is, what they consider valid, what well, what will convince them. More than, it, well, okay, yes, when you say what will convince them, you're just kind of creating this giant umbrella. Oh, I, wasn't, I didn't mean to do that, but yeah. But uh, so more than knowing what their ideology is, it's important to understand, ideally, how they got into the ideology and what they're getting out of the ideology. And with ideologies like this, or just almost any ideology, honestly, there is a certain emotional component to it. And understanding the emotional component is also important. All of these things contribute to understanding how an argument ought to be presented for best impact. But having all of this information, oh my god, especially when it comes to an internet stranger, you're, you're literally not going to have that information. Absolutely. I don't see any situation where being armed with a lot of information hurts. But that doesn't mean that information, as in facts, evidence, knowledge, logic, they aren't the go-to tools every time in terms of you said a thing, it's wrong, XYZ proves it, here's XYZ, right? A lot of times that just doesn't work. If they said XYZ and they're like, well, you talked about XYZ, I talked about XYZ, clearly you're wrong. It's just, there's wiggle room. It's, it's, not, it's not valid. You have to have like exactly the right thing if you're just going to rebut them with facts and logic. That's super hard to get there. Hmm. Yeah, online debates, largely pointless if you're trying to convert one other person. But I think a great place for online debates is talking to everyone who might read the debate afterwards. Yeah, people who are undecided. I really like arguing with people online about evolution. Okay. There's no shortage of people just saying very wrong, like mm -hmm. to the point where a small child can just ask why a bunch and destroy the argument. And these people are so wrong and they never give up. But I know other people read this junk. So I make the argument. I use sources and logic, knowing full well I won't convince someone. 
but anyone coming along later won't have an emotional investment. And if they read it, they'll see one guy being stupid and one other guy being like, facts and logic, here's sources, here's rationale, here's possible ways it could work. And something I say a lot is, I don't know. Unfortunately, to the person I'm arguing with, that looks like weakness. Of course. But when they claim to know, and I'm like, well, last time religion claimed to know a thing, right? we discovered how lightning worked, or we discovered tectonic drift, or you know, we discovered evolution, right? When you insert religion, fucking Neil deGrasse Tyson always comes up. If you insert God or your religion into I don't know, then your God is an ever-receding pocket of scientific ignorance. Don't pigeonhole your God. So on the evolution topic. Sorry, so much to unpack. Sorry. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't think I can or will unpack all of it. But there was there's only really one time that I can think of where I actively engaged in a evolution discussion with somebody who didn't believe in evolution at all. <laughs> I shared the story in episode one. I will share it again because it is worth sharing again. Please do. Please do. So he just more or less out of the blue asked me, Mako, if we came from monkeys, why are there still monkeys? And I, I, I instantly know where this is going. I instantly know that, like, I don't have the time and he doesn't have the attention span for me to explain evolution to him. They so rarely do. I, I just, that's not going to happen. Like, if I could capture his attention for long enough, I might have tried it. But I knew that that was a fool's errand. So rather than trying to explain evolution to him, I simply retorted back to him with another question. And his name at the time was Chronicle. So I just like say, Chronicle. If Americans came from the Brits, why are there still Brits? So I love this retort. Like this is a retort I heard from somewhere else. And regrettably, I don't remember where. But I love the retort because on the surface of it, it, it sounds like a quippy joke that a lot of people can laugh at. And there was other people in the channel. They did all laugh at him. But when you like really start to look at it, there's actually a lot of parallels. There's the Americans and Brits analogy is just a social version of what biology did over a shorter time scale. The same basic idea of, oh, some population was displaced and then changed because of that displacement over time. You can still actually kind of connect the dots with the quippy joke. I, and, think, yeah. I think the parallels are even further. But yeah, that's a really good point. Because in both cases, it leaves both populations after the fact. Yeah. yeah. So he didn't bother responding. In fact, to the best of my recollection, he literally never brought up evolution again with me. I'll point out, you had something else there. And I like this. I like deploying vitriol when it can be used to leverage emotion against someone. But you had an audience, and the audience laughed at him. You put him in an immediate position of emotional weakness, and he was supporting an anti-evolution stance, which means he was a dullard, and, and he was likely acting from emotion. Yep. You can't get to an anti-evolution argument with logic or facts, so he was acting from emotion or something else, and you just destroyed his, his any positive emotional connection he had to the notion of anti-evolution by having a group of people laugh at him out loud. It's like, for any topic that, that isn't based in facts or evidence, if somebody starts bringing it up and they're just roundly laughed at i mean they're done right like if oh god i've had it where moon landing denial was brought up at work we just laughed at him and i'm trying to do it more intentionally where after we laugh at them i try to give them back an in so they can be part of the discussion i'm like yeah that was a great joke thanks for bringing that up let's talk about this other thing now yeah my i did have an extra comment after the laughter died down and i point blank told him like if you want to actually understand evolution at any point you want to take the time to understand it just let me know and i will do my best 
He never took me up on the offer. Yeah, because you just got done attacking him. I asked a question. It's like, like, imagine if you're like, Squeaky, why are you so good at first-person shooters? And I hit you in the face with a baseball bat, and I'm like, because I'm violent. Are you? And then I offer to teach you. Are you, are you going to take me up on that? Does teaching me, the first step of teaching me involve you giving me the bat? You asking might mean I give you the bat again, so you don't know. Same with Chronicle. If Chronicle thought that taking you up on this evolution thing might get him roundly mocked again by the whole team, would he? I don't know. He, what, 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 what do you mean? You, I, I, I literally don't know because he is somewhat irrational like that. He did bring up other conservative ideas repeatedly in the channel. This is just the, old, the last time he brought up specifically evolution, but other things from conservative talking points he would bring up again and again and again. And even some of those things, like he would be laughed at, ridiculed, put down, and he would still come back with some of them. So it was specifically evolution he behaved this way with. Oh, so for evolution, he just dropped it. What were some other of his disevidential laden talking points? Uh, he thinks that the market should have, well, he b well, believed in laissez-faire capitalism. The market should have total control over what determines what the market pressures are. And with that, a minimum wage should be abolished. Wow. Okay. So he wants to be permanently poor. That's interesting. And he... It's a bold stance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he also felt that taxation was theft. He brought that point up multiple times. It is so common. Probably half the places have worked. As soon as we start talking politics, people say taxation is theft. And then I'm like, how do you want roads to be built? And then usually the conversation ends. But every once in a while, someone gets the bright idea of, well, there should be road companies and there should be toll roads. I'm like, okay, how do we make that work without destroying the economy? And then the conversation ends. Sometimes they put forward ideas, but then they realize it's fucking stupid. Because you, you just can't. You, we have to, as a society, agree to share something. You cannot have a society without sharing. Full stop. Yeah. And roads are just common ground between us. I dare say, isn't that the whole point of a society? Is the, the whole reason we're social is because we benefit from collective efforts? I tried so hard with my pun, man. Come on. I had to. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I just think most of these other people think they could get by on their own. If you think you don't need anyone else, you're less likely to care about other people suffering. Well, going off of the video we just watched, these people are largely socially isolated. If they are exposed to viewpoints that validate social isolation in some way, then they might embrace you know, isolation in other ways. But there's another video on that channel that you really should watch. It tries to dig into what the conservative ideology is, mm -hmm. and it's uh, called Always a Bigger Fish, but it's by the same people in Uendo Studio, so you have yep. the link. Yep. He starts by laying out America as a dichotomy. We are a capitalist democracy. And he says people like you, me, and him, we start with the democracy part. And because we are democratic, everybody gets a vote. Then on some level, we have to be equal or worthwhile. So we want to maximize equality and equity. Some people take the capitalist part first. And they acknowledge that in capitalism that there is always inequality because when you have more options, you can get more options. So if you're rich, you can buy more options and become even richer. And the people who are pro-capitalist feel that this is fundamentally good because, in theory, if you get a good enough or a clever enough idea or you're a good enough salesman or you're somehow special, you will rise to the top. They feel it is a real meritocracy. Okay, so it isn't. We know that. Yeah. Right? There's there's too many in-groups, too much clickishness, too much corruption, too much yeah, the, inheritance. The devil's in the details. Yeah. I think in theory you could build a system where you could build a meritocracy, but that just isn't modern capitalism. No. Right? Just if, if someone can inherit a million dollars and if somebody based on their race has a statistically lesser or greater chance of 
you know, moving themselves up socially. Right? It's not a meritocracy. It's just how many black billionaires do we have? Not nearly as many as we have white billionaires. Sure. Pretty sure that number is zero. I'm going to Google it. Fuck. Pretty sure the answer is more than zero. In the U.S.? Yeah, I think so. I type in how many black and it says billionaire. Oh my God, the list is small enough to count. Yep. Black people make up about 10% of our population. There should be about 46. Yep. So we've got Oprah. Oh, Kanye West. Michael Jordan's a billionaire. Good for him. Also, all these people are really low down in the billions. Oprah's got 2.7. We've got six American billionaires who are black. That's only slightly smaller than I expected. It's much larger than I expected. Out of all billionaires in the world, that's 2,095 billionaires. Okay, yeah. yeah. Clearly not a meritocracy. Yeah. Then to, to justify this and support this position, so people taking this capitalist view feel that this hierarchy is good, is natural, is correct, and that anything artificial is disrupting this. As long as the people who have earned it, who are worthy, have the power, then society will be good. Yeah. And these people often like to cite things like cell phones are cheap enough and we all have those. Right. And they like to say capitalism did that, ignoring how much of the Internet research was funded by the government, ignoring how radios were researched by the government, ignoring all the stuff the government did or how the government had to break up AT&T. Yeah. That's how we get racism into this. If there is a natural hierarchy and if some people should be poor and some people should be rich and if the current state of the hierarchy looks good to them, they will take it on their gut. And this is where the non-evidence-based rationale can get in. They will think that it should look like that and anything that tries to change that is wrong. So as soon as we start talking about equity, we've already lost them because in their opinion, well, the evidence is black people aren't as good at white people as this. And they take the current state of things as evidence, not realizing that's an effect, not a cause. Racism got us here, and most of them refuse to acknowledge that. So they let more racism in, and that's how we wind up with six, seven, whatever. Like, 3% of our billionaires are black, but 10% of our people are. There's a huge disparity there. You can't be as successful because of that, and they don't want to see rules that would change it to make it more equitable for everyone because they think it's already good and right. Blah. Well, Sorry. that, and they believe they have a personal stake in it all the time. They believe it's a zero-sum game, and anything that results in them getting more, or sorry, the, the black billionaires getting more, or black anyone that's not them getting more means that they themselves get less. Yep, because in this hierarchy, the hierarchy is a fractal of hierarchies. If you're a small business owner and you're doing something like plumbing, right, and you have a dozen employees, anything that shakes that up is a risk to you and your little hierarchy that you've built. Mm -hmm. People are afraid of losing that, even though it's not a zero-sum game. It's not. Right? It's just there is enough to go around. Even if it were a zero-sum game, I'm going to go back to my talking point. Make the billionaires sell their yachts. Just take enough money from billionaires so they stop being billionaires. I think zero is a plenty fair number of billionaires. Yeah, you can be quite cozy with many hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, I'll just take one hundreds of millions. I'm not greedy. Okay, you be you. <laughs> I got a moon base to build. But you owe me. <laughs> but yeah, tying back to ideologies. This is why it's so hard to talk to people about politics. If Innuendo Studios is correct, and if people are internalizing this hierarchy of society, as soon as we start talking about destabilizing that hierarchy that isn't written in the Constitution, it isn't written or, or codified anywhere, but as soon as we start disrupting that, we've already done things that people think are wrong at an emotional level, and we've lost them. Well, if you make an emotional appeal to questioning that hierarchy, or you emotionally present an alternative hierarchy, these are different vectors of attack. I suppose in theory one might, and I've never seen such a thing. Most people who talk about egalitarian talk about equality. Equality seems uh, 
antithetical to hierarchies. There's a lot of hierarchies that we kind of just accept. Like when we're in communities, there tends to be community leaders. We just accept that hierarchy. We all acknowledge that. Never mind. I'm going to start ranking fast food places, but I realized because of the pandemic, I haven't had fast food in so long. I have no say anymore. Well, I mean, restaurants in general, like you can still use information from before the pandemic. That's still relevant to the point here. And then like political hierarchies, like when I say political, I don't mean like what I was just saying with communities, but like actual government politics. Then there's like hierarchies for like even intelligence or like the perception of how good different people in the community are at given tasks. We like we assemble people into those hierarchies. Attractiveness can establish hierarchies. There's all sorts of hierarchies that we just innately accept and move along with our lives with. Sure. But any of those hierarchies still seem either irrelevant or incompatible or, or not rele- relevant to the democratic egalitarian we were talking about earlier, where like everybody gets one vote, everybody gets equal say, everybody gets equal representation, everybody mm-hmm. has real chances at economic mobility. Somewhat, kind of, sort of. Like, I-, I get that there is no direct connection between the two. Like, you can't just take someone who believes in the uh like a monetary hierarchy and shake that out from under them by saying oh well here's attractive hierarchy that's nonsensical to people yeah no one's taking the hierarchy based on what hot or not produced and saying here's the hottest person give them money holy shit is that website even still up what is it i don't think i'm checking i'm checking nope it redirects to chatdate.app chatdate.app sounds reputable oh yeah totally so that's a emphatic no hot or not is not still up for people who don't know hot or not was the center of some of that revenge porn nonsense and in general had a bunch of pictures people didn't want up there and you got to compare two people and say which one was more hot or rate people on a scale of one to ten yeah it was single image rate one to ten yeah, and they had a bunch of pictures that weren't, uh, you know, that there wasn't permission to have up there. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. that's not relevant to here or now. No. We're just talking about aesthetics. We digressed a bit there. But no one's saying that those relate to democracy. But like, if you take that basic concept and you use that to uh, try to present like an alternative hierarchy or attack the existing hierarchy, like one thing that I've heard before when trying to like demonstrate that the the monetary hierarchy is not exactly a merit-based one is uh, how do they do it like they were talking about like the amount of actual work that goes into different jobs and just compare the effort a burger flipper does to the effort a ceo does notice how little golfing the burger flipper does there is that but going one step further than burger flipper like presume you have a single mother of three that has to hold down two or even three jobs in order to maintain living conditions that is an outrageously extreme example but it's one that exists and you're gonna try to tell me that a cushy golf going ceo is doing more work and that's somehow being reflected in the merits in all of well this? somebody taking that meritocratic hierarchical stance would say uh, that black person shouldn't have had so many babies <laughs> and yeah that's racist as fuck mm-hmm. i have but it is what i've had people tell me and yeah it is also then oh, sorry i'm gonna digress is that okay sure these are also the same people who then are anti-abortion anti-sex education and somehow say that people should have the know-how to just not have kids when they're in a position where they don't have access to good knowledge, condoms, or 
or just even leadership and guidance that would tell them to you know hold off for a little bit the one time i got we weren't talking about exactly this so it's not a great example but one time i did have a conversation remarkably similar to this and uh, they didn't bring like race into it <laughs> fortunately race doesn't always get brought into it but people often talk about how urban people shouldn't yeah well even urban wasn't oh yeah yeah that's veiled racism yeah yeah uh, but uh, i did like see, people did kind of knee jerk a little bit like well okay well why does she have three children if she doesn't have any you know actual skills to get into a job with and then i just point out oh she's a widow Oh, shit. That shuts it down hard. And then they, yeah, they don't know how to respond to that. The capitalists I've responded to would say, should have bought some life insurance. Life insurance didn't pay out all that well. Her life insurance didn't? Or just it doesn't in general? This is, well, okay. In this hypothetical? In this hypothetical, yeah, I would just add that extra detail. But as far as real life, I mean, it depends on your life insurance policy. Some policies pay well, some don't. But one interesting detail about life insurance, one of the reasons why life insurance is so cheap is because a lot of people simply don't collect on life insurance. Because what happens is the person gets life insurance. They don't really tell anyone else around them about it. And then when they die, the, the necessary documentation and just awareness of that policy doesn't get passed to the, the next of kin or anyone executing. The knowledge of the policy dies with the policy holder. Yeah. And like a lot of other people think that they will just automatically be receiving the life insurance money. And like, no, no, you have to be an active participant in life insurance. You have to have all the documents. You have to verify everything the way that they have stipulated. You have to go to them and present all of this in order to receive the payout. And a lot of people simply don't. And that is why life insurance is so fucking cheap. Because I'm sure that's one of the contributing factors. Yeah. So I actually worked at a life insurance company for three months. This wasn't a contract, but I got a contract three months in that paid me way better. Uh, and so this wasn't a, a normal for-profit, publicly-owned corporation. It was a weird organization, like in a lot of ways. Like it was really like laid back and easy. It's how profitable they were. But they were trying to modernize and they were trying to go from some old legacy crap-based system to something new. And that's why they needed software developers like me. And knowing how all insurance companies work and how this insurance company worked, a big part of why it's cheap, in addition to people not paying out, I'm sure that's a thing. They also take into account basic statistics. Probably yeah. the most useful thing an insurance company does is keep actuarial tables. In terms of dollars and cents, a life insurance company can accurately tell you how much you are likely to earn for the rest of your life based on hard, fast numbers. Or they're able to tell you the percent chance you die. And, and they use this information to decide how much you should be charged. So you are charged ever so slightly more than you are likely to cost them. And just the math there makes that work out, even if they pay everything out. But I'm sure they factor in how often they actually do pay out. Uh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's all good. This is an another one of those things where maybe we should just not have insurance companies, but these actuarial tables are actually hugely valuable to society, but they're also not public. But having seen these things, right, I know exactly how much knowledge we as a society know about things. Like, I used to work for another insurance company that insured, like, agricultural equipment, mm -hmm. right? They had average failure rates, insure a fleet of, like, 60 or 70 tractors, right? They would lower your rate if you buy the tractors that were less likely to fail or the tractors that were more tornado-resistant, even if, you know, of course, if a tornado hits a tractor, it's destroyed. But some tractors have a 1% chance more, you know, of surviving if they're on the periphery of it. So it's, it's ridiculous, the amount of knowledge we have about these things that we can say, yeah, this one has 
a cost of ownership $100 less worth of insurance. And somebody living in such and such zip code can cost 10% less for, for uh, life insurance. It's, it's remarkable the amount of evidence and data that's out there. Yep. And the only actors we have using it are these hyper-rational, borderline psychopathic insurance companies that use it to extract maximum value from people because they're in a position where they, where they can absorb a huge amount of risk because they're huge. Right? Anything that destroys an insurance company also destroys humanity. So they're in a position where they rarely have disasters that, use, that force them to use all of their money. On the plus side, and I will name an insurance company here, one insurance company I worked for nationwide actually helped with the development of seatbelts. And there was one part where you'd walk in or out of the uh, the Des Moines office. They actually had, like, the history of the seatbelt. And they showed the Allied Insurance and Nationwide people that were there that helped research it and helped fund scientists. And, and of course, that was a greedy venture. It, it let them drop their rates by half, but up their profit margin by, like, you know, way more than half. Because if you just prevent people from dying, you pay out less health insurance in car situations. Mm-hmm. Sometimes greed gets harnessed for good, but bah. thanks for letting me digress. I just wanted to go way off on insurance companies. We are way off topic. We kind of have to be done. Fuck it, I got no logic here. Just edit all that shit out. Sure. (laughs) Thanks to all of our Patreon supporters at the Evidence Investigator level or higher, including Jarrett, Duct Tape, Keldar, Lazori78, and the rest of our Patreon supporters. Thanks for listening, and like, subscribe, leave a review, or tell a friend. Copyright 2021, Blacktop Studios, Inc. Intro music was Slow by Pidex, used with permission.